Welcome to Are You Out? Really glad you're here, especially if it's your first time. My name is Brian Sorgan Fry, uh, campus minister here. It's my fourth year. Love it. My wife, Liza, is on the front row. She's awesome. Uh, two quick things. One, um, we, we like to publicly bring attention to people that don't necessarily want it sometimes. And Tonight is Elizabeth Zampini's 21st birthday, so we need to like give that a round of applause. <laughs> And the other thing, there, there is nothing more pleasing than to have a semester on how maybe some of you need to get married than to have an engagement that actually happened. And uh, Wes McCann, Chandler Carlton got married, uh, no, not married, but got engaged, uh, I guess that was two weekends ago, so give them a round of applause. We're not married yet. Um, okay, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, it was strange for me not having RUF last week. I missed y'all. Um, and we're going to continue uh, walking through relationships semester. And I'm trying to remind you every week that because you're made in the image of the Trinitarian God, is what the Bible says, that relationships aren't just this chemical stuff that goes on, though it involves that. Um, it's that relationships actually are central to who you are. Because the God in whose image that you are made is a relational God. And so tonight what we're going to do is turn to the uh, topic of singleness. Why? Man, some people moaned about that. That's sad. Um, well, for two reasons. The majority of you in this room, you do realize, fall into the category of single. Uh, unless you are engaged, uh, or what you know the Bible would call betrothed, or married, you are single. Even if you've been dating um, your boyfriend for four years, you're still single in God's eyes. And the other reason is our culture. Um, I am the Bible talks about it, but uh, I mean, it, it really is amazing how many romantic comedies or Disney movies, they follow the exact same plot line, right? Any romantic comedy, it's, it's usually kind of a, a bumbling guy that has to kind of fight through the obstacles of his own failures or his own awkwardness or somebody that's against him. And, and, and so the movie spends two hours, right, of him trying to find and connect with his true love. And, and whatever circumstances happen and, and barriers that he has to get through, it always ends with a wedding. And that's how the Disney movies end, and that's how these romantic movies end. And I think it's such an interesting snapshot of our culture. Because I think what we're being told is that life is about finding the right person to marry and so the movie spends two hours on that, and then it ends in a wedding. And it's telling you that your life is about finding a person to marry, and after that, everything else is just the epilogue. That's kind of what's being communicated. Or it's kind of even worse, it's saying, if you find the right person to marry, you will live happily ever after. And you, just, you rarely find a romantic movie that begins with a wedding. They always end with them. That's the message. And see, the Bible never says that. The Bible never says your purpose in life is to find somebody to marry. I would actually argue other religions, if you were to look at them, kind of hold that out. Islam, Mormonism, because your destiny, your eternal destiny, is wrapped up in eternal life with virgins or something like that. Because it's ultimate. Marriage is ultimate. And sex is ultimate. But Christianity says no. Jesus is the point. Not your, your earthly marriage as good as it is. Jesus is the ultimate. And that means being a person in Christianity who is never married 
is not a person who is lacking. They're not a person that is somehow less in the kingdom of God. And actually, I think if you look at uh, history, right, we're trying to always get you to kind of work through some of your doubts. There's one sociologist that pointed out that Christianity actually is the first religion that actually uh, made singleness acceptable and valued. He has this quote where he says, Pagan widows, uh, kind of in Jesus' day, faced great social pressure to remarry. You follow the Roman Empire, even Caesar Augustus had widows fined if they failed to marry within two years because they were a burden. Then he says this, in contrast, among Christians, widowhood was highly respected and remarriage was, if anything, mildly discouraged because the church stood ready to sustain poor widows and allowing them a choice as to whether or not to remarry. And so if you're, if you're a skeptic of Christianity tonight, something you've got to deal with and something I ask you to look at is to look at history and just see. See if the societies in this world that actually began to care about the people that the rest of the world say don't matter it usually happened because of Christianity. And why is that? And when it didn't happen, and there are massive errors in Christianity, it's because Christians were being unfaithful to God's word, not because they were being faithful. And so just look at history and, and, and dare to ask that. So let's, um, let's tonight look at what the Bible says about singleness and kind of interact with it. Uh, let me pray for you. Father, this is your word. You say that it is living and active, which is, which is good news. Um, the retired... And um, many of us are dead. Lord, you say that Jesus um, is so kind and so gentle that a smoldering wick he will not snuff out and a bruised reed he will not break. And Lord, many of us need to know that tonight. So we feel like we're about to uh, be snuffed out. And we feel like that if we come to you, um, uh, we will be rejected. And Lord, would you help us to see tonight that you're a God who heals the broken. Lord, would you also come at that? Have those of us who are arrogant and prideful and confident, would you break us? Break us by the power of the gospel. In your son's name I pray. Amen. All right, I'm, uh, I'm actually not going to read everything here, but I'll let you know where I'm going. But I want to have everything so you can see the context. We're actually starting in verse 7. I don't know why I have verse 6 on there. That actually goes with verse 5 more than verse 7. All right, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. In 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, that's another word for engaged, I have no command from the Lord. But I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if the betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. I'm, uh, I'm actually going to skip down to verse 32 for the sake of time. Uh, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. How to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Grass withers, the flowers fade, the word of our God stands forever. Okay, what I want to look at, I realize there's no outline on your, on your sheet, sorry, but uh, the, callingness, uh, the, the calling of singleness, 
the goodness of singleness, the danger of singleness, and then the beauty of singleness. All right, that's where we're going. First, this little section of verse 7 through 9, the calling of singleness. Realize, okay, this is a very weird passage, okay, and it takes a lot of work to, to kind of to realize what's going on. But Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and if you read the first verse of chapter 7, you realize that in this chapter, Paul is responding to questions that the Corinthian church has written them. We don't know the exact questions, but you can glean that there must have been in this early church a lot of confusion about Christianity and marriage, about Christianity and sex, about what's going on here. And so they're asking Paul, and Paul responds. And what he says, here we go, is he wishes that all were as himself, that all were single. And that's where we say, what in the world? Right? And he says each has his own gift, his own gift from God. And this is confusing. Because this is the same Paul who writes uh, the letter of Ephesians that has an incredibly high view of marriage. And says God has given marriage, we're going to talk about this in a couple weeks, to actually be a picture of Jesus' love for his church. And so what Paul does is incredible. He never devalues marriage. He never belittles it. He never denigrates it. He also doesn't elevate singleness as some kind of elevated, holier status, I hope you see. But he also does this. He refuses to let single, uh, a single person be somehow thought of as incomplete or lacking in God's eyes or in, this, or, or in the kingdom of God. And so Paul uses this terminology of giftedness or you can think calling. That it's about where God has you. And so Paul is just saying, for Christians, for his people, God gives certain callings so that you can live for him in your present situation. And if you are single, then he's saying, right now, your gift, your calling, is to live for him like that. Which means your calling, your gift, is celibacy. It's the freedom from the need of sexual fulfillment. And I, I'm going to beg you to come back in two weeks. Kelly's preaching next week. It's going to be awesome. And in two weeks, okay, we're going to talk about sex and how great it is and the beauty of it, what it was made for. And so the issue of sex and celibacy, it needs more time. I promise them we're about to give, so come back. But Paul is saying there is something immensely valuable about being single and about being married. It's just about the calling. And, and he's saying, own where God has you. Own your present situation and actually see it as good. And, and that means for 98% of this room, right, unless you're Kelly and Caroline or engaged or me, um, the gift and the calling that you have is that you're presently single. And so many times, right, we sit around and we say, ah, gift of celibacy and singleness. Man, that's the one I hope I... <laughs> Is there a return policy on that gift? Right. That's the one. Uh, that's the one I don't want to. I don't want to end up with. But the Bible, see, doesn't it doesn't sit around. It doesn't ask you to sit around and try to discern if you have this calling of lifelong singleness and celibacy. It doesn't ever say that. It doesn't say you need to figure out if when you're 30, you still need to be celibate. It's saying look at the present. And it's saying if you're married or you're engaged, then you can know that your calling is presently now or going to be not selling it, but expressing a sex in the context that he has given you in marriage. But then it's also saying this. Are you single? Great. This is your present calling. 
be sexually pure and be celibate. It's a gift. It's a gift to honor Jesus. I, I, I should have put verse 17 in here and I forgot to, but it says this. Lead the life in which the Lord has called you. And so it's either marriage and sex or singleness or celibacy. Those are your two options. Laura Winter in her book, Real Sex, she says this. This is so helpful. Our task is to discern a call for singleness only for right now. And that's not so difficult. If you're single right now, you are called to be single and to live a single life as, robust, as robustly and gospel-conformingly as you possibly can. That's it. I don't know whether you have the gift of lifelong celibacy, and neither do you. But if today you are single, then your calling and your gift is to be celibate. And you can trust Jesus with that. And I do, I want to tell you, we're going to, we're going to cover more in this in about three weeks, but I do, I want to talk to some of you that struggle with same-sex attraction. Okay, it's here, uh, it is prevalent. But you need to know that your narrative of your story fits in here as well. It really does. The Bible has a place for it. Some of you, right, you've been aware that you've had same-sex attraction for as long as you can remember. Some of it has just kind of come to light more recently, and it's complex. But the narrative is coming to you and saying, what is your calling? What is your gift? Well, if right now you're saying, I'm struggling with same-sex attraction, so I'm single, then that's it. Your calling is celibacy. And not to go into a pity party that says, well, I must be a have-not. The Bible never says that. The scriptures are saying, embrace your call to celibacy, even if that's your struggle, and see that you are a valuable member of the kingdom of God if you trust Jesus. And I don't know. I don't know if that means that at 25, the struggle's still going to be there. God might change your desires, and you might be married at 25, and then your calling is marriage. You don't know what you're going to be like at 25. Your present day is celibacy. And that means that this whole thing is celibacy and singleness. It's not just this calling for a select few. And it's not necessarily lifelong. It might be. But Jesus, through Paul, is daring to suggest this. That your fundamental identity, and my fundamental identity is not wrapped up in your sexuality. Or in your relationship status. It's wrapped up in Jesus. And therefore you can trust where he's called you. And that's very different. And I, I need to say one other thing before we move on. Right? In verse 9, it's a very important verse. If they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. We're probably going to come back to this again. Okay, but look how practical the Bible is, okay? Paul is saying, look, you need to embrace your calling. If you are single, you need to embrace celibacy. Your calling is sexual purity. But if you are single and you're burning with passion, you keep being unfaithful to your calling of singleness, and entering into sexual things that are only appropriate for marriage, that's not just intercourse. Paul does, it's amazing, Paul doesn't say just quit. Just quit doing that. Quit being intimate. He says get married. That's what he says. In other words, Paul is saying have some integrity and let your calling publicly actually mimic your calling that you're carrying out privately. And quit making your faith a sham by publicly saying my identity is single but 
but privately saying, my calling is Mary. That's what he's saying. He's saying you're a coward. And you need to embrace your calling. Get married and embrace the calling of having sex in the context God created it for. That's what Paul said. Go one way or the other. You either, need to get, you either need to break up or you need to get married. But sitting where you are is living a double life, and it's killing you. And some of you say, well, I'm not mature enough to get married. Okay. Well, it'll be the first step to maturity to actually begin to get married or to finally break up and recognize your immaturity. Immaturity is staying where you are as a hypocrite. That's what Paul is saying. I know that might be hard for some of us. But that's... It's the wisdom of the Bible is amazing. So that is, first, the calling of singleness. Secondly, the goodness of God in singleness, verse 25, really, uh, through 28. Okay, what does Paul see about singleness that's so valuable, so commendable? Look at verse 25. Paul says, concerning the betrothed engaged, I'm not commanding you uh, to not get married. You're free. But in view of the present distress, did you see that? In the view of the present distress, he just says it is good for a person to remain as he is. So if you're married, stay married. And if you're single, stay single. Why? Because of verse 32. Paul wants you to be free from anxieties. And the married man is anxious about worldly things and his interests are divided. Let's talk quickly. It's going to take some explaining about what Paul is saying here. Paul is now moving on to the question of, should I get married? You are free to marry as long as it's in the Lord, if you're a Christian. And Paul says in a particular context of what I, of, of that I'm writing to the Corinthian church, you need to consider this. If you are unmarried because of the present distress that's going on, for some reason this gets ignored when most people talk about this, it actually might not be a good thing for you to get married because it will add to your anxieties and it will hinder you from being undivided in your devotion to the Lord. What is the present distress that Paul is talking about? We don't know exactly, but most likely, right, 1 Corinthians is one of the first letters that Paul writes around kind of 50 A.D. And we know from history that it's during that time that Nero starts reigning in the Roman Empire and starts persecuting Christians. And finally we'll end that with the complete destruction of Jerusalem. And we know that during this time there's a massive famine that's overtaking the Roman Empire. And Paul is saying, look, if you can remain sexually chaste, it actually might be best for you right now to remain single. Right? Imagine, you know, what that have been about 60 years ago or so. Imagine, imagine you're in Europe during World War II, right, and the Nazis kind of overtake where you are. Okay? Now, okay, imagine you're American and you want to go over there to help out because there's, there's people being persecuted, there's people in need. Well, on the one hand, here's the reality. If you're married, you're probably not going. And that's okay. Because, because at that point, your wife and your kids, it's not that they're hindering you. But for you to go or for you to take them, it's going to increase your grief and your anxiety because you're bringing other people into that situation. Or think about if you were a Christian in Nazi Germany at that time. Right? It's, you would be free to marry. But there would be some real things that would be, you would be increasing your anxiety and grief of how to live in that distress at that time if you chose to get married there. And that's why, I realize this is kind of teaching, but if you go read Mark 13, 
Jesus talks about the tribulation. He talks about women who are pregnant, alas, for them, and how nursing infants need to flee to the mountains. Jesus is not talking about the second coming there. That's what most people think. Go read it. He's talking about the present distress of the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And he's saying, okay, you can be married, you can have a family. But when you're running to the hills and you have a nursing infant, it's going to be more difficult. And so there's a couple of way of things of application here. Paul is saying that he has a preference for their present situation, his lifestyle, to find and embrace the gift of singleness and celibacy. It actually makes sense for Paul, right? Paul is like being shipwrecked and beaten and thrown in prison and being married would have added to his anxieties and stress. And so Paul's context is present distress. In our context, is there a mass famine and war going on that we're fleeing? No. But there actually could be some good reasons for you not to get married. Some of you have recently come out of relationships that had horrible wreckage in them through abuse or manipulation. And that might be okay to say, you know, it's not a good time. Some of you have to leave school and you might actually enter a job where you have to work like 90 to 100 hours a week just to get noticed and make it up. You're free to marry. But you're bringing, you're bringing someone into that. Some of you have massive amounts of debt. And I, I don't know. There, there's plenty of reasons that you could say it's bad timing. And bringing marriage into the present condition is actually going to bring a lot of grief, pain, and anxiety. And so embrace your calling. But what Jesus does not do, and what Paul does not do here, is give you permission to sit here in your dating relationship and act like you're in a mini-marriage, struggling physically and emotionally, and say, well, this is just how we are. No, move one direction or the other. But Paul is also saying this, singleness is extremely valuable in the kingdom. Extremely. Because you're single. Right? Think about college. Almost all of you are single. And this is one this is one of the main things I love about RUF. You just have like an infinite amount of free time. It's awesome. I, and I realize you've pound, many of you have pounded that free time with tons of things that you're involved in, but that's great. <coughs> right? So many of you right now, you keep unreal schedules. Right? You are you're involved with RUF, you're involved with, with your local church, you tutor people. You lead Bible studies, you like serve the poor, you have these amazing friendships with people, you go on mission trips, you do all this kind of stuff, and you somehow find time to exercise and do everything else. And it's amazing. But you know why you can do all these things? Because you're not married. And you don't have a family. And your schedule would be impossible in marriage. And after the first year of RUF, I, one of my repentance to Liza was I realized I tried to live your life while being married. I really mean this. And it hurt my family. And I had to stop. That's why I don't answer your calls at 9.30 anymore. Unless it's an emergency. Then I will. But you need to hear me, right? Your schedule has to change when you get married. Not because marriage is bad. Marriage is great. It's just a different calling. And see, some of you are going to forget this. And you're going to be 24. And you're going to be depressed because you're not involved in everything. And you only make it to one Bible study, and you make it to corporate worship, but it's hard. And you don't have time for all these amazing relationships you had, and you only have time to get to know your neighbors, and that's it. And you begin to think you're less of a Christian, or less valuable, 
are doing less ministry because what you're doing is changing diapers and doing the mundane, mundane things of life. But you're not less Christian. And your ministry is not, not less important because it's mundane. What's happened is the pace of activity and the schedule and the energy and the time had to stop. Because the devotion the, and the focus got pointed in a different direction. And so you're single tonight. Embrace it. It's great. You have incredible opportunities of freedom and time. Like There is no way RUF would function if everybody, if everybody here were married. There's no way. There's no way we would be able to do all the things that we do. And so I'm thankful. I'm, I love the demographic of college students. So embrace it. But thirdly, right there, dangers of singleness, verse 29 through 32. Okay. Again, Paul doesn't exhaust, exalt singleness over marriage and doesn't belittle singleness under marriage. But each calling, he's, he's going he's to um, say each calling brings certain temptations, right? Because the problem is not the calling. Hear me again. The problem, I keep saying the problem's not dating, the problem's not engagement, the problem's not marriage, the problem's not singleness. The problem is our hearts. And so Paul in verse 28 says, those who marry will have worldly troubles. And then verse 32 says, I want you to be free from anxieties. And here's the key. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. So Paul is saying, the goodness of singleness is that it should make you see that your life goal is not marriage. And it should make you see that your life goal is not financial security or a great reputation. But your life goal is the kingdom of God. And making everything new on this world until it becomes the, the fitting place for Jesus to dwell. The two great commands are not get married and have sex. They're to love God and to love people. That's how the visible rule and reign of God comes into this world, the kingdom of God. And Paul is saying that the calling of celibacy and singleness enables you to live for the kingdom of God in ways that married people can't. And it's needed. But here's the danger. When our hearts meet singleness, what ends up happening is instead of taking Paul's verse and saying, okay, the unmarried man is free and now, now is able to be concerned with things of the Lord, in our culture, we so idolize independence. We so think that life is about me and my wants and, and, and my achievements and myself that what we don't want to do is to limit ourselves for the sake of anybody else. That's why marriage scares somebody. And so the danger of singleness is what you end up doing is saying, okay, now I have me time. I can do whatever I want with my money, with my time, with my body. Because I have no husband, I have no kid, uh, kids, I have no commitments. But you can't. Right, you're in a bad place in marriage. I mean, this is going to be obvious. But if you're driving around in a sports car, but you don't have enough money to have diapers for your kids, like everybody looks at that and is like, gee. Something's wrong there. <laughs> but when a single person says, okay, this is my body, this is my money, I can do whatever I want with it, culture just says, okay. And the temptation of singleness is to see that you have this exempt status from being egocentrical and selfish in everything that you do. Because you think it doesn't hurt anybody when you do that. And it's a lie. Rankin Wilburn, who I stole tons of stuff from, he says, look, obedience does not know age or stage of life. It's always pressing upon you. Life is never about you. It's about Him and Jesus. The calling of singleness, it gives you some great freedoms, but the freedom is never self-indulgence. 
to use your time, your energy, and your money for the sake, for your own sake. It's always for the sake of others, the kingdom, and the church. And just recognize, that's the temptation in college. Everything feels like it revolves around you. You get to make your own schedule. You get to make your own friends. You get to do everything. And the temptation is that this is mine. And that's the temptation of singleness. And the other danger of singleness is that we so idolize marriage that we begin to judge God's goodness to us and God's love to us simply based on my relationship status. You see, Paul in some ways is dealing with ancient questions, right? Okay, now I'm a Christian. Does that mean that now God gives me a spouse? Or that now God gives me uh, the happiness that I thought I'd have or something like that? But see, some of you have actually told me this, and that's okay. Some of you and I enjoyed this semester series of relationships because it's made you incredibly aware that you're not dating anybody. And from what you can tell, it doesn't seem like marriage is on the near horizon. And you're angry. And you're bitter about it. And hear me. If that's because of something I've said or the way I've taught, then I, I need to apologize. You need to hear me say that. But it could be the fact that you so set up a paradigm in your mind that Jesus' goodness to me is, is if he gives me the life that I want, which involves marriage. And because marriage isn't on my near horizon that I can tell, God must not be good to me. And the danger of singleness is that you cannot be content with a God who loves you and in his love has not given you your heart's desire for a spouse or maybe even just a girlfriend. And so you get bitter towards God and you get cynical towards people. But the reality of the gospel is that you are presently single because God has been so abundantly good to you. And sees this present calling as what's best for you. And I know that's hard to deal with. And I know we don't believe that. But beneath all these worries and the way we judge God's love is this premise that single life is somehow a state of deficiency for people who are not yet formed enough for marriage. And that's a lie. Paige Brown, uh, I'm going to end this point with this. She's awesome. Old Argyth intern. She said, she was single until she was 35 or something. She said, I'm not single because I'm too spiritually unstable to possibly deserve a husband, nor because I'm too spiritually mature to possibly need one. I'm single because God is so abundantly good to me because this is his best for me. That's amazing. That's great. And I'm asking you to, to, to instead of going into self-absorption and self-pity because your life isn't where you wish that it was, to see the opportunities in this season in your life actually give you great, great places to have incredible relationships. And so often what we end up doing, especially when we kind of escalate in college and we sit around and we think about how lonely we are, and God has surrounded you with a million people that you can love. Don't be so self-absorbed in your loneliness that you miss the five people in your sorority house that you could actually go love and serve. Don't get paralyzed by what you don't have and find somebody to serve and to love. I will never tell you this, I promise. I will never tell you that if you follow Jesus, everything is going to work out just like you hoped. I'll never tell you that because it's a lie. Because Jesus has bigger hopes than you could possibly imagine. And that might actually involve our lives looking like we don't think that they should. How can we say that, right? This is how we're going to wrap it up. How can we believe that? And it's the beauty of singleness. 
The only way you can begin to, to live in the freeing reality of God's immense goodness and love of you is if your identity is not in your relationship status as a single or a married person, actually. The struggle with the same thing as married. But in your redemptive status. That's what defines you. Look, 2,000 years ago, the second person of the Trinity, the Godhead himself, became a man in Jesus Christ. You realize, Jesus was single his whole life. He was celibate, and that does not mean he lacked sexual desire. Right? Hebrews 4. Able to emphasize our weakness, tempted in every respect as we are, but without sin. He was a true man. But I really want you to think about this. He was the standard of all humanity. He's it. He's fully human. He is full of life. And look at Jesus. He's single, but he never misses out on anything. Anything. His Heavenly Father never quit loving Jesus and never quit blessing him. And the beauty of this all is, is whether you're married or what you're single, what we all do is we forget who we are. And the temptation is begin to define ourselves by our relational status, either what we have or what we lack. But if you are single, you are, not a, you are not a Christian single. You're a single Christian. One of those is the determinative and the other is descriptive. The description of who you are as a Christian might change. But your status in redemption never will. You are a have, not a have not, by definition of the fact that that Jesus loved you so much that he lived and died for you and promises to never leave you or forsake you. You're a have. You're not a have not. And singleness actually reminds us of that. There was a pastor in seminary, um, uh, while he was a seminary student, I heard another pastor on this, and what he would do kind of uh, for his internships, he'd go to this nursing, stand, nursing um, home that was very understaffed, very underpaid, dirty. He'd go every month to visit people. And one Mother's Day... He finally, uh, he went down to this part of the ward that most people don't go to. And he, as he went, he realized why. It was mostly insane people, very disfigured people. And he, he, it was on Mother's Day, and he went to this lady who was blind, and her face was disfigured, and he handed her a flower. And he said, Happy Mother's Day. And he spent some time with her. And, and, and when he went back, uh, after he visited around, he went back and saw her on the way out. She'd already given her flower to somebody else and said, Here, this is from Jesus. And so he went back home, and, and, and he couldn't quit thinking about this lady. And so he went back two weeks ago. He went back to her room. The room was terrible. It smelled. It was understaffed. Mabel was her name. And he finally just said, i got to ask you. He said, what do you do here? Like, how do you pass your hours all day in this dirty place in darkness and loneliness? Here's what she said. She said, well, I, I think about Jesus. And this pastor said, I sat there and I thought about how I struggled to think about Jesus for 30 seconds. And, and so he said, well, what do you think about Jesus? I said, she just replied, disfigured face, blind, slowly and deliberately. And she said, I think about how good Jesus has been to me. He's been awfully good to me, you know. I'm one of those kind of, that, that's, that's mostly satisfied. So most folks wouldn't care much for what I think, and most folks kind of think I'm old and fashioned, but I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus, because he's all the world to me. Isn't that amazing? Somehow she knew, even amidst her circumstances, she was a have, not a have-not, despite everything that the world told her. 
And your eternal identity that was won on a cross 2,000 years ago is that you are His. And we've got to quit judging God's love to us through the lens of our circumstances and start judging God's love to us by the fixed point of the cross. If God came to this earth as a man and went to the cross to do what you could not do for yourself, take your sins, your self-pity, and give you a perfect righteousness that you did not earn, that's who you are. Jesus' perfect righteousness covers you. And if that's what covers you, it is impossible for God to not be presently good to you right now. It's impossible. Because when he looks at you, he sees the righteousness of his own son, and he loves it. And that's why God's people need single people. Because what it reminds us of is our satisfactions in Christ. And not in my marital status. And I'm going to end just by quoting Rankin Wilburn right here. One passage in the Bible that always makes happily married people really upset and unhappily married people really excited is Matthew 22. Jesus says, at the resurrection, there will neither be marriage. And he goes on to about this. Right, Jesus just said, at the resurrection, when Jesus comes back, there'll be no more marriage. Period. If that's the case, that means singleness, it cannot be inferior. It can't be. Our heaven would be inferior, because you have all unmarried people. We really do believe, as Christians, that in heaven you will finally be whole, you will finally be your most real, most true self at last, and it is saying, there will be no marriage there. And what, we, what I say is, how is that possible? I love Liza. That's how I know who I am. And what I begin to think is that the central relationship in my life is Liza. And Jesus says, no. Who you are is not essentially Liza's husband. Who you are is my bride. And the, at the end of time, there will be, marriage will be no more. There will only be one marriage between Christ and his church. There'll only be one marriage feast, and we'll all celebrate. And it'll be a marriage that's beyond comparison. It's eternal, it's intimate, it's ecstatic. And we, as we as God's people, see God face to face and bask in that. When Jesus comes back, I will stand next to Liza. Of course I'll know who she does. But you know what? Our identity will not be that we're husband and wife. It's that we're the bride of Jesus Christ. And that she's my sister in Christ. Which means all that's going on here, whether you're single or married, it is preparation for that day when you receive the true grace and enter into eternal joy. And you say, that sounds great. But what about on Friday night when I start getting into loneliness again? What you have to ask yourself is, is God being any less good to you on the Friday night that you feel lonely than he was on a Friday afternoon when he hung on a cross because you are the joy of his life and you are his desire. It's cosmically impossible. He can't be less good to you right now than he was then. That's the love that will not let you go. Do you know it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the amazing love of uh, Jesus Christ. Where so often we try to wiggle out from it, we run from it. Uh, we try to find our identity in so many other things, but we build our life on popularity. We build our life on, uh, on the person that we date. We build our life on our sexuality. And Lord, you say you want something better for us. You want us to build our life on the eternal God of this universe that depends on us. 
So would you restore us to that tonight? Enable us to confess by saying there is a love that will not let us go and receive that in your son's name of prayer.